friends. How's it going? Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Thank you for subscribing to Hey Human on iTunes. It helps to get the numbers up and the story out. Thank you for telling your friends about Hey Human and because they tell their friends and it is exponential. And if there's anything on any of these shows that you would like to talk to me about, please email me. My email is susan at heyhumanpodcast.com. If you know some interesting people that you think would be good for the show, let me know. Uh, if you listen to a podcast and you have questions for a previous guest, let me know. Some of these uh, guests I've had, I have more questions for, so definitely going to have some people coming back. Oh, and also, if you're in the Maryland area, uh, September 10th and 11th, I'm going to be performing music. I'm a singer-songwriter as well. Performing music at Chateau Boudet Winery, and that is in Chesapeake City, Maryland. I'll be performing with In A Round, that's what we songwriters call it, In A Round, with Megan Linville and Paul Jenkins and Sam Brooker. So it's going to be a really great weekend of music and wine. What a combo. This particular episode is with Karen Lynch. She is a retired police officer, San Francisco police officer, and she was one of the first female officers in San Francisco. So that's a very cool thing. She wrote a memoir, which I devoured. It's really good. It's called Good Cop, Bad Daughter. And uh, gosh, I mean, I'll let the interview speak for itself, but she's a delightful woman, and I really enjoyed speaking with her. All right, Karen Lynch, Hey Human Podcast. Hello. Hi. Can you see me? Let's see, front camera. Okay, let's see. Oh, okay. I see you, and then, okay, now there's the... There should be a button that says camera. Is it too dark? I'm sort of in the corner of my kitchen, and I realize that it's a little darker than I thought it would be. No, you look great. Can you see me now? There you are! Yay! Uh, okay, good. Hi! <laughs> okay, hi, how are you? I'm well, how are you? Good. It's good to meet you. It's good to meet you. Yeah, I'm gonna, let's see here, I'm gonna move the microphone. I've got, I've got two computers running at the same time, it's all very exciting technology. <laughs> but I'm only recording the audio, not the, so I'm just paying attention to levels to see where I am for things like... The gain and the volume. Say, just say a little something just so I can see if I can... A little something. There you go. Yeah, I look better on radio. <laughs> Don't we all? Don't we all? Okay, that should help. All right. Cool. You're a musician, right? Pardon? I, I, don't, I don't know that much about you, but you're a musician. I'm a, a performing songwriter and, uh, and a, a dabble in writing poetry and books and things, but nothing, nothing concrete yet. And then a uh, painter... I'm a painter, too. Very cool. And a podcaster, apparently. <laughs> wow, that's so great. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so I guess we just get started, really. Um, okay. Welcome, Karen. Thank you for being on Hey Human. I really appreciate it. Thank awesome. you. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, I, uh, your book is right here, Good Cop, Bad Daughter. Um, I loved it. I really did. I, I blew through it. I read it so quickly because I, I saw myself... Uh, my childhood and a lot of things. I had oh, a, a. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it's what it is. I had some similar experiences. Uh, nobody ever tried to set me on fire, but there were a couple other hairy moments. So, um, yeah. 
Yeah. There's just so much I want to talk to you about. It's it's you're first of all you're one of the very first female cops in America, correct? Well, um, I was one of the first generation. I was not actually the, one of the first um, in San Francisco. They first started hiring women in 1977, and I came in in 1981. Okay. But at that time, there were still quite that we were were not you know there were very few of us. There were maybe a hundred at the yeah. time. So other people had paved the road for me, but by the time I got there, we were still not really wanted and had to deal with a lot of uh, a lot of just kind of hazing, I think, to try to scare us out of doing the job. Yeah. So there was still kind of a sense that it, uh, it was kind of in our hands to prove that women could do the job because the popular belief was that we were too cowardly and too weak, too emotional, all of these sort of stereotypes about women. And so we felt kind of a, a, a weight on our shoulders to prove that women could do this so that the doors would be open, kept open. It would just take a minute of a man giving birth to realize that a woman is a, a thousand times stronger. <laughs> well, it's true, you know. In some ways, I think um, maybe we fear pain a little less. I don't know. I mean, I think after you've given birth, it does kind of uh, make you feel like, oh, yeah, I can take it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, okay. Let's. Um. I guess start from the beginning is the. It's always the best place to start. You were born in San Francisco. Yes, my parents uh, came from the East Coast, and they they wanted to be writers, which is kind of ironic because they didn't have much success with that. They both did write, and they had some uh, some poetry readings and stuff during the beat beach, and and they had been lured here by that whole beatnik. Jack Kerouac, sure. Lawrence Ferlinghetti scene. So, so I'm really happy. The one thing that I will never ever regret is that they moved out here and I was born here because it's such a great place to be. What was it like growing up uh, in that in the height of the Height Ashbury time frame? Well, I had just such an exciting childhood because um, after my parents got divorced, my my mother hooked up with the man I call my stepfather, who was really just a live-in boyfriend who eventually saved me in the book, Jim. Yeah. And he, um, when she met him, he had a, a bookstore. And they, just at the beginning of sort of the whole hippie stage, they started uh, writing and making buttons, button titles that uh, became really popular. And um, they were sort of on the cutting edge of the whole button and bumper sticker scene. And so the bookstore kind of dissolved and they opened a head, head shop that had posters and all the beautiful Fillmore posters and the Avalon and all the things that are now artwork that I sure wish I kept. Oh, man. Yeah, but they would, it was fun. You know, they would sit around drinking wine with other people in the store, other customers and friends, and, and they would um, shout out different. Uh, ideas for button titles like you know I mean obviously the you know what if they gave a war and nobody came those those kind of things but so your they, your mom and Jim and those couple friends they invented these iconic sayings let's take a second to acknowledge that that is incredible a yeah a lot of them they did I mean not that particular one I that one was one that they that just I don't know where who invented that one but um silly ones like my mother would come up with stuff like go intercourse thyself or um oh gosh there's so many some of them um some moment but it was so fun just you know it was really creative and fun and and people um like some high school students would, would come and hang out there and it was really cool to see the beginning of that and 
and my my stepfather would deliver buttons and posters to the stores on hate um, and we would bring them down and bring them in and I got to be like his little helper and I just remember walking down hate street and people trying to sell us acid you know window pane all that kind of stuff they yeah. would be advertising I think it might have been before it was illegal to use uh, LSD because nobody really knew what it was yet yeah Timothy Leary hadn't shouted from the rooftops at that point yet he should have kept it quiet and <laughs> no, no actually I think LSD was not the, the best thing the way the way people were taking it anyway it's you know I mean I'm sure it's a, it, it could be really good if it was uh, refined but I yeah. think the stuff they were selling on the street had a lot of other stuff other stuff in it yeah I uh, I spent a, a a year in high school every every other weekend my friends and I would go to the beach or whatever and we would take acid and just have a ball okay well you must have had the good stuff I think so <laughs> probably yeah it was a great time <laughs> misspent youth for sure um, oh, yeah. so I, I'm trying to think of the best way to approach this conversation uh, the book is great it, you wrote a memoir and about your childhood and growing up and your decision to join the police force when you're when your mom was considered them basically Nazis, I, mean, I believe is what she referred to the police as. Um, first, this book, it read like a great fiction book. That's a compliment. I mean, here's your life is playing out like this. The craziest truth is stranger than fiction, right? This crazy... I I couldn't put it down, honestly. It would make a great movie if you ever think about doing that, but... um actually trying to make it into a television series right now so oh that's great my fingers crossed that it will all work out oh i'll cross my fingers too that would be amazing so look, really... look for good cop bad daughter the series yes i mean it's it'd be a great series for sure uh they i, I could just picture the pluckish child that is you know yeah so great there's a lot of different yeah angles you could do with it so it's there's a lot of uh, yeah my life was so strange i think that's why i I always felt compelled to write a memoir. I wanted people to know. After I read um, Jeanette Wall's book, The Glass Castle, mm. um, I felt, I was in my 30s, I think, and I felt like, oh, my God, I wish there had been books like this when I was a teenager. Because when you're going through it and you're watching The Brady Bunch or whatever and you think everybody else in America has this normal life, what normal, whatever that is, mm. and you have this, you know, horrible thing, and who, how are you supposed to navigate it? Um, I just thought, you know, we need more books like this. We need books about people surviving bizarre and crappy childhoods to sort of like just to um, to give encouragement to other people yeah. through it, to, to young people mostly. So talk about what, what we're talking about, because I've read the book, so I know your story, everyone listening, um, although they'll read the little you know, description when they listen to the podcast, talk about sort of the general aspect of, of your life. Well, my mother was bipolar. And so the first, uh, the first real chapter after the prologue begins, I was committed to a mental hospital before I was born because she was, I was in utero with her at Agnew State Hospital. And of course, I don't remember that. I would be very freaky if I do. <laughs> I have a very good memory, which is strange. I can remember so much from my childhood back to about age two, I think because it was so vivid and traumatic and all of that, so many changing scenes. 
And part of her mental illness was um, she would take me, she loved to travel and she would take me around the world, but she didn't like to fly. She was afraid of flying. So we took trains and ships. But the problem was whenever she'd get to a place within a few weeks, months, or however long, she would have some sort of breakdown and end up either um, abandoning me somewhere and I would be, you know, wandering around lost at age five in Japan or, um, or in England, I ended up in a children's home for some time, for a couple months, I think. Um, and uh, so, and she would end up in these various psych wards around the, well, England was really the only one outside the country, but she ended up in psych wards quite frequently in California. And so that was kind of, uh, I, I say the book is about how my mother trained me to be a police officer, because in a lot of ways, um, learning how to deal with her, how to calm her down when she was crazy, um, how to talk to her, um, really sort of did give me a good idea of how to talk to people who were in altered states and, and just to be very calm and things like that and, you know, not to argue with them or, or confront them, things like that. And in, a, in an unconscious way, I think, and I didn't really realize this until I finished the book. And, and that's one of the interesting things about writing memoir is you get a really sort of a, a more interesting look at your own life and all of the things that tied together. And at some point I realized that unconsciously I had wanted to arm myself, to protect myself from this woman who had tried to kill me and who had done all these traumatic things to me. But the book isn't like, oh my God, my mother was so horrible and she did all these horrible things to me. And that, that wasn't really, you know, the message I wanted to convey. I wanted to convey that, you know, she was a complex character. She did many wonderful things for me too. She taught me a love of books and, and brought me to some really interesting places that I'm really glad I got to see and live in. And they were beautiful and interesting and met so many people. But at the same time, um, you know, it, it was very difficult. You mentioned in the book about how your mother's eye color would change. And every time I use, you mentioned it, I think, three times. And when you describe it, I, I had no idea. Does that happen in mental illness, that people's eye color? Or is that something that was just a, a metaphor? or? No, it was real. And I don't know, uh, I don't know that many more bipolar people well enough to know, you know, I would encounter them in the street at work, but I wouldn't know what their eye color had been before. But with my mother, it was absolutely true. It was not a metaphor. She had very deep, vivid blue eyes. And when she would become, um, when she'd go into a manic state, I would see her eye color lightening. Um, yeah, it would become lighter and lighter till the point where it was almost like a white gray, you know, it was no longer blue. It was very strange, and that even before they started saying, uh, you know, as a child, I knew intuitively that whatever was going on in her brain was biochemical. There was no doubt about it because I could see the chemistry of her body changing. Right? I mean, that to me, that was the evidence. So, um, and and they knew that. I mean, they at that time the treatment was lithium, which she refused to take uh, because it required blood tests. It required she she was never. Um, willing to do that and plus the manic state is really exciting it's like being on speed or something I think and I mean I don't know I have never been manic per se but um, I don't think when people are in the manic state they want it to end I think it feels good to them yeah. it's just that it creates 
disaster for their lives and the people around them sometimes. Sure, sure. So, like, when she tried to set you on fire, was that a manic phase or a depressed phase? That was, her, her manic phase was um, when she would do those kind of things. Yeah. The depressive phase, she would just stay in uh, bed, um, smoke tons of cigarettes, and read voraciously. She was pretty... Uh, into very into history and very much an intellectual she she read everything in sight and she could talk about all sorts of subjects and things like that never been to college but um, just self-educated and, and read and read and read and she did she would spend years like that like a year or two in bed I mean not just in bed she did get up to do stuff but just spent hours reading and reading and reading but when she went manic that was when all bets were off and it felt very scary as a child because it was like she could do anything and I couldn't even imagine the stuff she was going to come up with you know and um, so yeah the episode with the fire thing I don't know what her intention was but um, but yeah she brought me to a church and then set my hair on fire while lighting candles and um, you know and that was just bizarre and and I think at some point she became convinced usually she would become convinced I was possessed by demons or something like that and you know that sure. her job was to wipe me out this is very interesting the link between highly intelligent people and that wave of insanity that yeah it, it is very interesting i i've read a lot about it because of course i'm you know one of i've always been afraid this is going to happen to me or to my kids or something so i have read about that and, and it does seem like there there's a link obviously between creativity and and being Madness. nutty, yeah, and um, and that if you can really find a good vent, vent for your creativity and a way to express yourself in other ways, sometimes it seems like that may stop people from having breakdowns and having to be manic in some other, you know, art is a really good way to, to focus your manicness. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Did your mom read the book? No, my mother, I didn't even know where my mother was when the book came out because she had, um, I kind of had, uh, periodically I would take like a break from her and just sort of like let her disappear. And she had been in a manic phase and was just out of control. And so I hadn't talked to her in about five years. And when the book came out, um, the publisher asked me to track her down just to, you know, see if she would sue us because I wrote about her or just, you know, what she might do. And so I did have to find her, and it was a little trickier. I had to go to the Social Security office and give them her Social Security number, and then they forwarded a letter. And she was in a um, skilled nursing facility, and she's still there. And she's pretty much in a state of dementia, I'd say, at this point. So I could probably read her the whole story, and I doubt she'd recognize that this was about her. Does she recognize you at this point? Because I know toward the end she, she, she knew who you were, but in the end of the book when you went to see her yeah she did she knew who I was during that visit and then excuse me I did go back a couple of times with my with my son with her grandson who's 21 now and um, with my husband and by the last time she said she didn't know who I was and and then she I said I'm Karen your daughter and she said oh yes I remember Karen the girl but um, she was killed by her squad in the police department so yeah so apparently she in her mind my squad had shot me for some reason. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Yeah, you know, pretty, yeah, pretty dramatic way to go. Yeah. 
Wow. So you spoke about the, that sort of stuff is genetic. I know that for me, when I uh, when I was hitting my early 20s, I started getting very concerned if I got depressed or anything like that. I thought, oh God, am I, am I, have I got my mother's issues? And uh, Was your mother bipolar? Uh, manic depressive and uh, DID and, you know. Yeah. Fun stuff. Yeah, fun stuff. Yeah, and I think and not well medicated back then. Now she's well medicated, and we're you know we're fine. But yeah, yeah, fine enough. (laughs) Yeah, bipolar was just the old fashioned term for it. I think, Um, or or bipolar is now the the normal term for manic depression. Okay, that's what they called her back then. So I don't. Okay, so then yes. Yeah. 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 She would have fits of of depression that kept her in bed, and there were things that you had said about how she would, your mom would. Um, behave for certain events uh, that I found very familiar. You know, you were like when you would be going to an event, and she would, she would make you super upset, and I found yeah. all that very familiar. Yeah, um, you could pretty much predict that if there was a big event coming up, like a graduation or a wedding, or uh, you know, somebody we we had to something like that, she would, she could create the manic episodes in her own body by drinking so sometimes she would some sometimes she wouldn't need to really drink to set it off but if if she was upset enough she would just start drinking for maybe two days heavily and then by the third day her eyes had changed and she was in a full-blown manic episode and she didn't drink anymore she just would be flying high on natural chemicals. I don't even know what exactly kind of diagnosis she had because no doctor besides that goofy doctor on the ship when she was thrown in the brig that time, um, he was the only one who gave me a diagnosis and he believed she was manic depressive with overtones of paranoid schizophrenia. So when she was in the brig, this doctor, I, she disappeared on the ship for a long time and I know I knew that she was getting ready to have a manic episode because of the eye color thing and I went back to our cabin and um, at some point this doctor from the ship knocked on the cabin door and told me that my mother was in the brig which now how old were you at that point I think I was I'm trying to remember I was either 12 or almost 13 and um uh, yeah, and I remember thinking, oh my God, the brig. I didn't even know that this was a cruise ship. It's like, what is this, a pirate ship? There's a brig? I don't even, I didn't even know they had those things. But, yeah. And so that was an adventure that, uh, you know, was very distressing because they pretty much just let me stay in this cabin and go about normal cruise ship business. And but you're a we, child. That's the difference. I mean, to, in this day and age, if that were to happen, they would... I mean, I'm sure some sort of child protective service would be brought in from somewhere to... Absolutely. It was such a different time. I mean, it was only the 60s and 70s, but and it, which doesn't seem like ancient times, but so many things were so different there. It was, um, you know, children, like, especially on the English ships, you could drink. Nobody would stop you if you were, you know, if you could walk to the bar, and that's the way it was in England, too. And, um, and I, I tell people things that would happen on the cruise ships because she would take me on these ships a lot and nobody can believe it. Like the, the women, I've talked to people who work on ships now and I say, said to one woman, do they still do burials at sea? And she looked at me like I was insane, but I remember seeing many burials at sea 
when we were crossing the Atlantic, and that was just normal. People actually who loved the ocean, and they would just travel on ships all the time, and their dream was to be buried at sea. So yeah, and now that's like, are you kidding me? We yeah, can't. ecologically, I don't think they're down with that anymore. No. <laughs> I lost your video. I can't see you now. Oh, um, let me see. Oh, here I am. Okay. So um, you mentioned a second ago about how, you know, we're, that you have friends who are working to change the, the voice of, of uh, mental illness. And I, I too, I, I find that, of course, it's, I talk about this all the time on my various podcasts, that uh, it's certainly vilified. We, we, we don't help people that need help. And, you know, growing up in that situation, you have to be the parent. But you also... Yeah you see the humanity behind the crazy, yeah. you know, I mean, deep down you love your mother. That's, yeah. that's yeah. very apparent throughout the, throughout the story. Oh, you, you, I'm glad that comes across. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I definitely did not want it to be, as I said before, a victim story like, Oh, poor me. Um, I, I know that whatever happened to my mother had to be a much worse than what happened to me at some point. I think, um, I know she grew up with a mother who told her she didn't want her, and that had to have been hugely um, traumatic for her, I think. Did she ever acknowledge that she had mental illness? Your mother ever acknowledged she had mental illness? I think she knew she was, but, you know, she wasn't really uh, normal, whatever that is, but she would describe it as her nervous breakdowns. She never really said, oh, yes, I need, you know, I need medication or whatever. She hated the medications they would put her on, so she pretty much refused to take anything. At one point, she was on Thorazine. and That's and, heavy. Uh, oh, it was very heavy. And um, uh, I wrote a, an essay about um, trying to OD on her Thorazine, which is not part of the book, but it's in Shades of Blue, which is a book about depression and, and trying to bring out um, stories about people who've survived suicide attempts and things like that. Mm-hmm. And when, when I took the Thorazine... Um, it took a while for I, they, they, I finally told on myself, and so they made me throw up and get it out of my system. But there was enough still in my system that um, I got a sense of why she hated that medication. Yeah. <laughs> How old are you when you did that? I was um, 14. Okay. Just you kind of had had enough? and. Yeah. It, you know, she was on the verge of another manic episode. She was. I could see the beginning of it. I was, I had just reached a point where I was like, I cannot survive another one of her manic episodes. And, um, and she had at that point tried to strangle me. And it was just, a, you know, there was just, it was, things were escalating. The drama was escalating. The violence was escalating. And the thing with my life was I really had nowhere else to go. Yeah. I was completely dependent on her. Um, she had isolate, isolated herself from her family, who had all been on the East Coast, and I never really met any of them except once when she kidnapped me as a small child. And um, so I didn't really have anybody to go to except my, my friends' families, and I was too embarrassed most of the time to really let them know how bad things had gotten. And so um, because I was so dependent on her, I just I couldn't think of any way out. I knew I was 14. I knew I couldn't make it out there by myself plus I had a horrible horribly uh, intense sense that I needed to take care of her mm-hmm. so just abandon her either that was part of it too god what a childhood so intense 
Yeah, you know, it was intense, and but, you know, I know people have had much worse. Uh, mine was bizarre, just, you know, so many dramatic episodes. But um, the thing that I'm really grateful for is um, that, that I had no younger siblings. She did have a few abortions when I was... Um, when I was a child, and I think, oh my God, if she'd had those babies, I would never have been able to get away from her because yeah. I would have felt so responsible to try to save them. Because that's kind of how I roll, you know. I become, and then I become a cop because <laughs> she really trained me. She yeah. trains to be, you know, that was yeah. what <laughs> what she wanted. She wanted me to rescue her and take care of her, and so I realized I could never do that. Nobody can save her. She no, you know. right. Did you um? Did you have to go? Not have to. I mean, I, w I went through years of therapy. Did you go through therapy after? Yeah. Oh yes, I I chose to um, go through probably six years of therapy. Yeah. In my yeah. And goodness, you know, so much of therapy is who your therapist is. Oh God, it. yes. And I was fortunate to get an excellent therapist, and and she helped me a great deal. But you know, obviously, I'm not. I didn't get away scot-free. I have had a great life. I have a great family now. I've been married for 27 years. I have three children who are all wonderful. Yeah. But, um, but I've had my share of PTSD, and yeah. and in my my third, I guess my 30s, yeah, I discovered I, you know, I started having panic attacks, not at work, but um, I would kind of like find a, a place to have the panic attack, and then you know that wasn't at work. I managed to always function really well at work, and. Um, and so it's it's still there, you know. It's it's like you always have you always carry that baggage with you. Oh, for sure, it's always there. Absolutely, like everybody's got something. So yeah, but it doesn't mean that your story isn't you know uniquely yours and as intense as somebody who maybe that we always try and make something better or worse on someone else's life. But it's horrible to be in it. You know, yeah. everyone's horror story is their horror story. So yeah, yeah. I definitely honor your horror story, and I know that it had, um, I know it had some good times too, for sure, but, and obviously it created an environment where you were able to probably be a really excellent police officer. Well, thank you. I hope I was. You know, I, there are things I did that I wish, in retrospect, I had done differently, but that's a book for another day. <laughs> yeah, well, we all have that in our lives, I think, yeah. for sure. Talk, okay, so talk about this. Now, you, I love the story of you looking out, the, the part in the book where you're looking out the window and you see yourself driving. Yeah, oh my gosh, that was such a, I, I kind of downplayed the spiritual aspect of that because I didn't want people to think a complete Looney Tune had written the book, and a lot of people <laughs> are really put off by anything that seems spiritual or whatever. Well, I would love to hear the Looney Tune version because I'm, I'm a Looney Tune. So. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll have to rewrite the book as a Looney Tune. <laughs> pretty good stories. But um, I was, I, at the time I was just, I had just graduated from uh, UC Berkeley because I had been planning to be a nurse, which was really what my mother wanted me to be. And that was what she thought she was training me for. And uh, I was, um, a serving wench while I was in college. Um, I was underage, but nobody knew that. And I worked in the bar as a cocktail waitress. And on my day off, I was at Vesuvio's in North Beach, which is ironically where my parents met, but I had never been in the bar before. And for some reason, my uh, best friend and I were just wandering around North Beach and we decided to go into Vesuvio's. And we were upstairs and we ordered Irish coffee and we were looking out onto Columbus Avenue. And I saw. Um, this black and white police car driving up Columbus 
and this woman was driving the car and then she had a male partner and her hair was down and it was long and dark and wavy like my hair is and I looked at her and I thought I was looking at myself and I turned to my friend and I said look I'm driving this car <laughs> and she looked out just to see the tail end of the car and I turned to her and I said I, I think I'm supposed to be a cop which was totally bizarre because it was the first time that thought had ever crossed my mind um, they were just beginning to recruit women as I said 1977 mm -hmm. were the first ones I had never even thought women could be police and police are in my story a lot as a child because police in my life were the ones who came to rescue me from her from yeah. my husband. so I viewed police as um, people who um, help you and save you and and I want to be a helper and a saver and so when I look at the the window and saw this it was like I didn't even know women could be cops and I had I think Charlie's Angels had been like the first show where um, you know we had like police women and these old shows but those were mostly like they were not really like uniformed officers who were out there Charlie's Angels at the beginning of the show they would show um, a Jacqueline Smith in her police uniform in San Francisco at the shooting range and I had seen that and thought wow can women do that but that was as far as the thought went and then when I saw this woman driving this car and thought it was myself, all of a sudden it was like a possibility I had never even considered. And it, and from that moment on, it was like I knew this is what my destiny was. I was yeah. supposed to do this. It was very strange. It's incredible. I love that little wink from God saying, hey. Yeah, and, and the funny thing was this woman, when I finally figured out who she was, that she wasn't actually a, 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 you know, an imagined uh, hallucination of myself, um, acid flashback or something <laughs> once I realized that um, it was it was so funny because within a few months I met her I met the actual woman and she became my mentor mm -hmm. yeah I was really bummed out in the book when she because she was the one that that yeah. at the party and then she stepped down and I was so bummed that she stepped down I have to tell you again I'm gonna keep louding this book because I laughed, I cried, I held my breath. It was, it was really a good book. Oh, thank you. <laughs> really. That's nice to hear good. I yeah. wanted it to be. And I read a lot. I'm a voracious reader, and so, you know, it's up against many, many books, and it, it definitely held its own. It's very ex excellent. Yeah. So, I, want, I mean, I, it made me want to, you know, know more about the story, So, which is always good, especially for a TV show, right? That's what creates more yeah. seasons. Yes, I would, you know, that's the thing I'm hoping the TV show will happen because there were so many characters I wanted to develop more, like people from the Academy, like Donut and just all of them. You know, there were just so many people that were so interesting. Sure. And I could write a whole book about each of them. So, you know, so we'll see what happens, but, you know. Yeah, you spoke about the one um, during the riots and you, you ran, you were, you got separated from your group, from your troop. Right. And, um, and, came upon that bar where, is it Warren? Was that right? No. Which was the officer that was running around hitting people with the baton? Oh, yeah. And I thought, well, that's, I mean, here's the thing. There's two, there's people that want to help people in the world, and there's people that want to hurt people in the world, and people who have, you know, a, a, a complex of I'm a bully and I'm a horrible person, you know, whatever I want to, and I want to put my power on you. And the people are like, I want to help you and I want to lift you up. Yeah. And of course, 
media now is, is at a fever pitch where we know everything happening in real time. And there's all these stories about, I know, police officers being violent towards citizens. But it, it bums me out that there's not a report every day about all the goodness that police officers do. You know, I was coming home from a concert last night, standing on the corner, had a lovely conversation with a police officer who was out there sweating his ass off in full regalia on the street corner, making sure that drunk, dumb people don't get hit by cars, you know, when they cross the street. Well, thank you for talking to him, because that that really makes our day when, you know, people just treat us like humans. But, yeah, you know, it's, I would say the vast majority, there's something like 800,000 police in the United States, um, which is incredible when you think about that number. I would say the vast majority, probably, you know, 750,000 of them are really good people who who want to help people, and and they were drawn to the job um, because they wanted to help their community, make a difference, protect people, um, things like that. But, you know, if if you have, even if it's, you know, 1% or 2% of those people are running around and they shouldn't be in the job, they're the ones who are going to get the attention. They're the ones who are, you know, we're seeing the same dozen videos over and over and over. But I try to remind people that there's something like 65 million interactions between police and civilians every day, yes. every year, every yes. year in America. Yeah. And very few of them end up in some sort of tragic mistake or, or horrible decision by the cop or things like that. Very, very few of them. And it's got to be, I mean, speak to that too, it's got to be terrifying. I think for some reason we as a society, we look at police to, to police us to, you know, make sure things are functioning right and the bad guy, you know, is, is taken away as the bad guy and the good guy is protected. But it what a terrifying job. I mean, my God, you you are risking your life every single day. You don't know what you're walking into. Someone could snap. It could be a mentally ill person. It could be, you know, a guy who's got a gun on his wife and you have to go in and somehow talk the guy down or, or whatever it is. Or, you know, a little kid's being abused by his mother and you have that careful balance of if you go in there... That kid could get beat worse later in the day because you showed up, you know, like all this crazy stuff. I don't I don't know how police officers maintain that all. I don't yeah. know how you can go into the every single day. I mean, I'm sure the good stuff hopefully outweighs the bad stuff, but... Oh, definitely. Yeah. And I think it's become more dangerous. I mean, they say there's 300 million guns in America and there's something like 25,000 gun deaths a year and we're the ones the cops are the ones who were going to all those calls most people in their normal lives do not uh, run into too many murders or things like that we're the ones who are getting sent to the parts of town that a lot of people never want to go to um, where people are killing each other and wanting to kill police and wanting to you know and I'm not justifying any of of course things we've seen that are wrong and those cops who are making those horrible choices need to be taken out of the job and But, um, but yes, I think there is a lot of, you're dealing with people now who have a lot of PTSD, cops on the street, they've been shot at multiple times, um, and yet still, the vast majority of cops retire without ever shooting their gun in the line of duty. Yeah, I wish that, I wish those statistics hit the newspapers every day. (laughs) Yeah, they make it seem as if, well, and part of it also is the public sees 
television shows where cops are constantly shooting it out. Mm-hmm. And while you know those things happen every day in America, they don't happen to every cop every day, and they don't happen, you know, multiple times to the same cop usually. You know, sure. there are a few exceptions, but the vast majority of us never get shot and never end up shooting our guns at anybody. Did you point. ever shoot your gun? I did not. I did not have to shoot in the line of duty. I was very fortunate, um, and a lot of that was luck. And um, you know, the thing is, we see these horrible videos, but we don't see that cops are confronted with armed suspects every day, um, and don't use excessive force quite frequently. Are able to to abate it without shooting anybody. And yet the assumption is, well, yeah, they didn't shoot him because he was white or they didn't shoot this person or they shot this person because he was black. And it's not the case. It's very much a case of, um, of different cops just um, reacting differently. And it's not, it's uh, a lot to do with the, the fear factor. You know, I think that we're not seeing the whole picture. We don't know, gee, was this cop shot at? Was his partner killed a year ago? You know, we don't know the whole story of what's in his brain, you know. Do police officers get PTSD evaluations every year? No, they don't. And, and you know, I, I don't think departments really have the resources to do that. And that's the, the bummer of this whole thing is that so much of this is about training. Um, you know, people, it, you, you react the way that you train. And, and small departments just don't have the funds, and many of the bigger departments don't have the funds to really put you through the repetitious training of, okay, responding to a gun call, how are you going to do this? Okay, this is, now we're adding this and, you know, different simulation kind of things that really help people um, prepare. And, and every department has some training. I'm not saying there's no training, but the amount of training that you need to make the right choice most of the time is, is phenomenal. Of and, course. Yeah. And it should be a yearly thing, I think. But, you know, I I think about that, too. Maybe if we bought one less bomb for the military and took that $10 million and put it into our, you know, our protect and serve fund, that might be a good idea. (laughs) Well, it's it's a very complex problem. And, of course, the whole open carry Second Amendment thing is creating a huge thing. And, And I do think there's going to be a change. I think... The younger generation at some point is not going to tolerate um, the number of guns we have, and I'm not saying nobody should have a gun in America. I'm not. I'm not advocating that everybody's firearms be taken away, but certainly there's no reason why people should have AR-15s and right. all this kind of stuff. It's getting ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. They, your your neighborhood shouldn't be a DMZ. No, shouldn't be. <laughs> And I don't really know how, I, I don't understand how cops can be expected to differentiate between the so-called good guys with the guns and the bad guys with the guns. I mean, we just saw that situation in Dallas where, where the cops, five cops were killed. And during the course of that, there was a man who somewhat fit the description of the guy who was shooting, wearing camouflage and carrying an AR-15. But, and, they, and the media actually posted him as being the suspect. I know. And, yeah, and he wasn't the suspect. And so I don't know how you can really have a society where people are running around in camouflage with an AR-15 as civilians and we're to assume that they are not going to cause us harm. Yeah, it was that, that whole thing was, such, was just so sad that the fact 
first of all, the the shooter was like, oh, I'm going to take out the man, the white man or whatever, the white police officers. But I believe that three of the five were, were police officers of color, and if not more. And, you know, you probably took out some really great guys, buddy. Yeah. I, you know, I think, I don't remember. I think they were mostly white, but, you know, in any case, yeah, they were decent people. They were good guys who were out there trying to do the right thing. And right. And so he's basically doing the opposite of whatever it was his crazy mind was trying to yeah. accomplish. And yeah, it is. It's insane. And it is. yeah. Violence does not, uh, it just, oh, it makes me so crazy. I, it is crazy. <laughs> uh, it is. Okay. So. Let's get back to to your story as we got on that little tangent, but it's a fascinating tangent. Um, so you see yourself in the car driving down the street, and you think this is for me. Now, yeah. first of all, let's just acknowledge that that's brave as hell, considering you're a female in the era that you were in, where women were not police officers really. Like you said, there was maybe a hundred, and. Uh, I mean, that must have been so scary. And to know that your mom was going to freak out and you were, you know. Well, yeah, my biggest fear was my mother's reaction. Yeah. Frankly, because I, it never occurred to me that I would get killed or that it was that dangerous. I was pretty a pretty uh, strong feminist then. And that was really the era where women were trying to break into all of the things they told us we couldn't do. Right. Um, the fire department and... Um, just every day there was like some new thing. There was a movie Cherise Theron was in, I think, about the coal miners, you know, where she like broke into working in the coal mines, which, oh my God, to me, that's way more terrifying than, than police. Yeah, I don't know why anyone would want to be a coal miner. That sounds like a horrible job, but. Um, yeah, I, being an underground, I'm slightly yeah. claustrophobic. Yeah, so me too. Yeah, I wouldn't like that at all. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so. It was sort of, I had a chip on my shoulder. I was like 20, you know, you have to be like 21 and stupid to sign up. (laughs) (laughs) Think that you're, you know, you'll never be killed or you'll, you know, you're going to live to be 100 or whatever I was thinking. Um, And so it didn't really occur to me. And I kept hearing things like there were so many um, articles in the newspaper about the new women cops and the public being polled and saying, oh, women are too weak and too emotional and too cowardly. And so it would kind of like push me, you know, it pissed me off. It's like, how dare you say this? You know, I'm going to yeah. prove that we can do this, you know. And, and so I had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. And, um, and so that might have been what, partially what was pushing me. And then Devlin. Talk about Devlin. <laughs> Once you got in and you started doing the basic training, or what do you call it? Not basic training, that's military. But uh, what do you call it for you guys? Is it still basic training? The police academy. Yeah, the police academy. So basic training is military. So police academy. You go into police academy and this Devlin character. Oh my Uh, gosh. Yeah, it was essentially Devlin was a a sort of a a mirror of my mother. So, you know, he was like this sort of uh, bully. He was a bully. And I was used to dealing with a bully because my mother could be quite a bully. Yeah. And, um, And so... Yeah, he was um, my nemesis in the police academy. He really was determined to to get the women out, and he did not like the fact that women were... The, the city was forced to hire women by a consent decree, by a, a big legal action that happened a couple mm-hmm. of years in the, in the mid-'70s, and a lot of the older men really resisted it. They just did not want the women in the department 
and he was one of them. So he was getting ready to retire, and uh, I think our class was his last class, and he was like determined to get rid of the women. Yeah, I was really bummed when your friend bagged out at the last minute, too. Yeah, that was a bummer, and, um, you know, but it was the right choice for her. I found it really interesting that um, when you did the weigh-in, once you were a police officer and you, you had to get the weigh-in with Devlin, and he didn't really even acknowledge you, as in, as if he didn't even know it was you. Yes, that was so, I mean, that was the thing he was trying to use at the end to try to fire me, saying I was like three pounds over the weight limit, which was absurd because yeah. even if I had been, Donut was like 40, 100 pounds. I don't know. He was like so far over the weight limit, <laughs> and yet he wasn't even being called in to be weighed. And here he had made this huge thing about the weight limit, and I really, I was so close that there was no way he could fire me for that. Um, and yet, you know, here I had just, I never had been really overweight. I was like strong, but you know, it wasn't like fat or anything. Sure. Um, by the time I, I got in, we have to go for, we had to go for a weigh in like every six months. So like six months into my job, I went for the physical fitness assessment and, and he weighed me and he just wrote my, I lost 10 pounds. I thought he would say, Oh, good job. No, you know, something that had been so major and obsessive for him was really nothing to him. I was nothing to him. I think that's a really good lesson in life in general that, you know, the people who are our bullies, you know, we could be anyone. We take it personally because it's a, it's an attack against us, but in reality, they'll, they'll pick any target. <laughs> that's because I think being a bully is part of being a narcissist. Yeah, I agree with as that. As we are seeing in politics. Um, oh, God, yes. <laughs> and, um, and you're right. I don't think it matters. They don't care who they bully. They bully everybody that they can. Anybody yeah. they think they can get away with. A reaction. Yeah. They're looking for the reaction. Yeah. yeah. So do you think that being a female um, in comparison to the male counterparts um, helped you uh, be a police officer? Maybe give you an empathy or an intuition, you know, the feminine intuition or um, toward some of your suspects or some of your the things that that you had to face I, I do think that I don't know if it was just me or you know being a woman I think there are men who have really good intuition too um, so, but I think that I did have a pretty good intuition like for when somebody was gonna go off on me when I when I felt like whatever I was doing was not calming the person down and they were gonna just fight with us I was pretty good at knowing when to call for help before I needed it and um, you know and it, I didn't need to do it that often but every now and then you could just tell that somebody was going to cause a huge fight and if they were much bigger than I was you know usually I had a partner but I would just you know I would get a car rolling so that kind of thing I think helped me um, I you know there were times where I had no intuition at all but and and would have made a different choice um, but I did feel like I, for the most part, um, I, I did a good job, I think, and um, I don't regret the job at all. I loved it. It was really um, what I was meant to do. Yeah, but I'm sure the police academy, although it was excellent training, I'm guessing your mother was the best training you could have possibly received. Yeah, she totally was. Yeah. Was, yeah. Yeah, um, living with a person like that makes you psychic makes you know know what's happening before it happens i think so i think it's a, a really like a survival instinct mm -hmm. small age from a young age i think when you know that you cannot trust the people who are 
supposed to be taking care of you, something else kicks in, and I don't know what if it's a spiritual, you know, some people might think spirit guides, some people might think it's just intuition, I don't know, but definitely I felt like something was protecting me sure. from her a lot of my life, and in the street also as a cop. Did you, um... Did you worry that your children were going to manifest any of this stuff that your mom, since it is genetic, and was did she inherit it from a grandparent, or do you know? I, I don't know who she inherited it from, if she did. Um, she didn't have that much, she didn't speak that much about her family, so I, it was hard to know. Um, I did worry um, when I had kids, but I also, in one of my other weird spiritual moments, when I was 11, um, this spirit guide or this voice that comes into my head sometimes, occasionally. This isn't like I have voices talking. No, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. yeah. But um, on this one occasion, this this voice told me, you're going to have two sons. And um, so I, I knew that I was, part of the reason I was on this planet was to have these two sons. And so that made me feel like I was supposed to do it. And it, it kind of allayed my fears that they might end up with her illness and and so far they've been fine they either 24 and 21 and I don't see any signs of my mother's illness or you know they're they're very happy well-adjusted kids that's great is your husband was he a police officer as well or he was he was a a lieutenant he retired as a lieutenant and he was a cop for 33 years what is that like for a a police officer to meet another police officer and I mean I and fall in love I mean it's it's well, got we had kind of a strange story because when I met him, I actually didn't like him that much. <laughs> he was a, a rank above me, and he was my sort of a supervisor in my station, but not my direct supervisor. We had several sergeants who were supervisors, but he was a new sergeant, and he came to my station, and he was a little bit badge-heavy, which, you know, when you first get promoted, people want to do a great job, so they're, like, overly zealous. Yeah. And, um, and so he had not made a great impression on me in the beginning. <laughs> But, um, and we were both seeing other people, and I never thought about him as a possible person to date or anything. Um, but one Christmas Eve, I was coming out of the station, and I was single, and I really had nothing to do, and I was kind of bummed, you know, Christmas Eve, and I've got nowhere to go. And I'm leaving work, and all of a sudden, I see him standing on the, on the sidewalk, and he has this rose and this pine branch, like, wrapped in this cellophane thing, and he walks over to me, and he hands it to me, and he says, Merry Christmas, Karen. And I was like stunned. I didn't, I, I never thought of him in a romantic way before, but here he was. And, and then time passed and he didn't ask me out. I kept thinking, oh, he's going to ask me out. And I was too shy to make conversation with him. And finally it occurred to me, maybe because he's my, like a rank above me, it was right around the Anita Hill stuff and it was just becoming sexual harassment was just coming into the national conversation yeah and I thought maybe he's afraid that I'm going to make a complaint that he harassed me so yeah so I wrote him a note saying it'd be nice to get together for a, a coffee or a drink sometime and and then he did call me right away and it <laughs> turned out my fear my thought about his fears what was exactly correct in fact he still has that note 28 years later oh um, that's lovely yeah. it's very cute yeah mm-hmm. and I don't know whether he keeps it out of uh, being romantic or just in case I ever make a complaint. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. I love it. So talk about the TV show real quick. You've, you've pitched it, I assume, and you're not yet. No, we're in the process. There's a couple in Los Angeles who are, are, uh, 
writing a pitch and a pilot, and then, and then we're going to pitch it. So, oh, so yeah, exciting. so fingers crossed it'll get picked up by somebody. I think it would be a great show. I mean, it's got all the elements for sure. And, you know, America loves police dramas. Yes, and I don't want it to be like a regular, another police procedural kind of thing. I, I hope that it will be uh, more character-based and, you know, just these crazy people, crazy characters from, you know, police yeah. works. Well, and it's funny. There are moments in here that are that are really funny, too. Oh, good, good. And I, good, I, I, I got pretty misty-eyed when Jim passed away. I, I had a feeling it was coming just as your setup was really excellent for it, and I just went, oh, no, I don't even want to turn the page. <laughs> I know. I know. It's one of my life's regrets that um, I wasn't able to really do something big for him. You know, I as I got older and, and made my own money and, you know, there were things I wanted to do to thank him, you know, like, you know, take him on a great trip or. Yeah, I feel like he knows. And, and I never really got to him. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like he knows. He knows you love him. and I think he does. And I think also um, I'm, I'm pretty close to his kids, um, Barb and, and Steve. And, and I, I've tried to be a good big sister to them. And they've been a great, great siblings to me. So I figure that's a way to pay it forward. Thank God for Jim, too. I mean, just reading that, just he talk about being your angel. Oh, my God. He was amazing. Yes. Yeah, he, he totally did not have to take me in. He was really risking a lot, and nowadays he might be risking being arrested just for doing that, you know, without going through the legal channels. Yeah. But if he had not given me a place to stay, I don't know where I would have ended up. So, yeah. Yeah, I was a little, when you talked about, um, I'm sort of jumping around, of course. I want people to read the book, and hopefully I'm dropping enough little little biscuits that they'll want to eat it all up. Um, that. The when you went in, you answered the ad, which would have been akin to I guess Craigslist. You answered ads that you were trying, you were desperate for money, right? Right. And this guy was looking for models, and you know I'm stupid. I'm 15 or whatever I was. Um, and fully you know, developed. Yes, very developed. I developed at 11, so I'd always looked much older. People always assumed I was 20. Yeah. From the time I was 10. <laughs> I was yeah. Just, and um, yeah, so I answered this at this ad and ended up in a very potentially dangerous, stupid situation that that pretty much only a teenager who's got nobody looking over her would have chosen to get into. But thank goodness I got out of it alive, you know, and I got out of it without doing something stupid that I would have regretted later. So yeah, one singular walk through a door changes a person's life completely. And for some of these kids who are on the street and homeless and they're hungry and scared and desperate that it, it makes sense that they would turn to that, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. And it also makes sense that in order to do it, you would have to almost become a drug addict because it's such a disgusting job in so many ways. I mean, it can be, you know, you're just... Yeah. yeah. I totally get how, how it all evolves. and. Yeah, for most young women who have no skills and um, are out on the streets, your your choices are kind of limited. And young men too. There are many young men who absolutely you know on yeah. the streets. Yeah, it's it's a tough thing. It is a tough thing. Well, what's something that you kept out of the book for for whatever reason? You said that there were some things you didn't talk about. Oh uh, well, you know the the suicide attempt I left out, and I I wasn't really sure why I was leaving it out at the time. 
but intuitively I felt like this is a survivor book and I don't want to get off into this tangent of this episode. So I kind of left it out. And then Mm -hmm. when Amy Ferris was doing her anthology, Shades of Blue, about all of these people who had survived suicide and the whole point of the book is it gets better, hang in there, I'm so glad I survived. Right. then I was. Um, then I realized why I had left that out. It was like, oh, because this was coming, and so I wrote that story and, and added it to. And, and Amy was kind enough to add it to her anthology. She's great. I'm gonna talk to her on the podcast as well. She's. Oh, great. I yes. love her posts on Facebook. She's a fireball. I love it. She is. She is. She's so inspiring. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you know, for me, the the thing that was best about police work was really the camaraderie. I mean, I did. I was drawn to it because I, I wanted family, and in my imagination, I was now going to have 2,000 <laughs> brothers and sisters in blue who would have my back, and I'd have their back. And I did get a lot of that. In fact, um, at the end of my career, I ended up getting breast cancer, and oh. uh, a lot of my coworkers donated their time, their vacation time, and you can you can donate sick time and vacation, whatever time you want to donate to um, people who are in crisis or whatever. And I was able to be off for a really long time, and, and ultimately I decided just not to go back. I retired because I was old enough to do that. But I retired before I planned to. But anyway, they, they really do show up for you when when things get bad. And, um, and you know, it's dysfunctional. It's a dysfunctional family, too. You have members that you don't like and people you hope you don't have to work with. But for the most part, I found my coworkers to be just really... Um, loving people who take care of each other. Yeah. Your first partner, do you stay in touch with him? Oh, yeah, very much so. I'm, I'm, some of my closest friends are former partners. And um, the, the part, I changed everybody's name, so I always have to think twice now. Who did I? What did I? Uh, I <laughs> Nora, whose real name is not Nora, yeah. um, still my one of my closest friends. Um, because I had so, because there were so few women in my class, and I ended up being the only one in my class to get out of there. Um, I ended up not having as many female friends in the department as I would have liked to have had, uh, but I sort of acquired them since since retiring. Uh, Facebook is a wonderful thing. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, people that I would just know in passing that I never got a chance to work with, I've gotten to know much better since since leaving. Yeah. God, what a, yours is a truly wonderful story, and it's inspiring. It really is. Um, Thank you. Yeah. I can't wait for the TV show. Oh, thank you. And thank you for reading the book. I really appreciate it. Oh, I devoured it. I read it very quickly. I, I very I I wanted it to keep I wanted to know more, which I suppose is good considering I was gonna be interviewing you and I'm, there's always a million questions, but um yeah, I mean I'll definitely I'll post a link so that people can can get to the book so that they too can read it. Um it's thank excellent. You. Yeah. And you're excellent and thank you for your service. Right back at you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, it was really a pleasure talking to you. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, and please keep in touch when the show gets picked up and everything. We'll have you on again and talk about Absolutely. the show. Because well, that's a that's a process in itself. Um, you know, and actually, before we hang up, I'd love to ask: Was it hard to get somebody to to take you on as a memoirist? I mean, you know. You... Oh yeah, actually, I. I started out trying to get an agent and I sent uh, query letters out to all of these agents that I, I had a list of different memoir um, agents and I one of my friends, well in my friend group was Christine Bronstein who I knew um, 
had some connections in the publishing business, but I didn't really know what she was doing. And I just sent her a letter saying, hey, Christine, I'm looking for an agent. I'm not having a whole lot of luck. Do you know anyone? And she replied and she said, oh, as a matter of fact, I just started my own publishing business. May I read your book? And she was the one who decided to publish the book. That's so fantastic. She just, yeah, I was really lucky. She had, and, and I love her. She's a great woman. And so she had just started this indie press, Nothing But The Truth, um, publications and she was mostly focusing on women's stories because she felt like they weren't always getting as much exposure as some other stories. Yeah. I are you, are you getting this book out? Uh, when did, when did you write this? What year was it? Uh 2014. Oh, so it's only been out a little while. 2 years, yeah. Yeah. So well, hopefully it will catch on like wildfire and people will keep reading oh, it. Thank you. That's very sweet of you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure. Yeah, and uh, keep me posted, please. Okay, take care. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.